1: Hey everyone, it's Yas here and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by co-host and elite coach educator Gerard Jones. Now these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT live on Twitter space if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, slightly different and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joa will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you could let me know your thoughts on the new format and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at The Coaches Net. Once again, that is at The Coaches Net. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format.
0: The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.
1: Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast. A podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UAF licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy.
0: So Gerard, let's dive straight in man question is what percentage of my session should be in versus out of possession what are your thoughts
2: yeah so you know as i was listening, listening to the question and, and reading it before i was thinking to myself well obviously great to clarify what we mean by in and out of possession um you know are we talking basically with the ball and without the ball and are we even simplifying it further in how much of our session should be attacking versus defending is that perhaps why you're even thinking of it as well that's my first question
0: yeah, I think there's definitely
2: that element to it, you know, in and out of possession. But I think it's also
0: maybe in some ways providing some clarity if we can on our, on our perceptions of what in and out of possession is beyond that. You know, at when does it become a transition moment to when does it become an in and out of possession moment, if that
2: makes sense as well. Absolutely. I mean, well, for me, you know, look at the question and I guess there's no right and wrong answer. But every session should probably focus on these principles. But then perhaps the, the advantage for the coaches is, at least this is how you know, I've operated for a number of years and, and, and continue to mentor and guide the staff that work for me, um, is that we'll shine a light on certain principles. So, for example, every practice will be it include in and out of possession and transition. It'll include all four moments of the game. I know there's more moments. You've got restarts, you've got set pieces. But if we just simplify it, the 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 game includes attacking, defending, and the transition in between. Every activity that we create will encourage that, so we'll work on those all the time. So there's a lot of attack versus defense, or a lot of small-sided games, which or other type of directional activities that will include those moments. Transition being a huge part, you know, especially if, for example, we're doing some sort of work, whether we're shining more of a light on defending or more of a light on attacking. Let's say we're shining a light on the defending, but then when the defenders win the ball, then what? You know, so a lot of times we'll see coaches will design these practices, uh, hate the word drill, you know, but they'll say drills or whatever, and then the defending team wins it or the defender wins it and then they give it back to the attackers. Well, no, can there be a moment where, as we've won it, can we counter to a goal or counter to a target or... Attack a counter goal or something, so there's some kind of relevance to going back to how we want to play. you know if your defenders win the ball in a real game, they're going to be able to transition now from defending to attacking you know so can they counter attack quickly do they have to build possession? Are they looking to play forward or so what what actions do you want to, and behaviors do you want to reinforce so for me, every session should encompass all of that, but then. You know where I'm going with it, it doesn't mean this is the only perspective. You may have a, a different yours, and or the same. Or other people listening might have a different one or the same. I think where we could go with it equally as well is that how much of our sessions typically only focus more on in possession when we've got the ball and what we're doing versus out of possession. And for me, it would be more. You know, I, I try and have a balance, but at the same time, there'll be certain times depending on team needs where. You know, we might be focusing more on the attacking side versus the defending. It'd be interesting to reflect as a group of coaches and go, well, actually, out of all the sessions that we run, do we tend to focus more on in-possession? Probably, as an assumption. And then the question becomes then is, how well can we, you know, revisit that? And actually, are we giving our our players enough experiences to know how to problem-solve and how to defend? Because if we're, and, and I just want to go back a little bit, Yazin. I said, well, everything includes everything. If we're trying to develop really good attackers, we've got to manage the opposition first in order to defend. So we've got to create a problem for them to solve. So even at the simplest form, no matter what level you're working at, whether it's academy, senior, college, grassroots, it's the same. You've got to be able to create a problem, make the defenders know how to defend, give them a motivation to defend and make it difficult for the attackers so that the attackers have to come up with even better creative thinking, better solutions, better movement. Because it's all well and good. We say we're working on attacking and we're getting loads of success. But I'd often look at those activities and sessions and go, yeah, but are they defending properly? Or are they defending well enough? How easy is the defending? How challenging is it for the attackers? And likewise, on the other side, If you're wanting to amplify more the defending behaviour, how are you managing the opposition to create more problems for you from an attacking perspective, so that it's getting the defenders to have to really think? So that's where I think that percentage dial will be interesting if we reflect on that.
0: No, I think you're spot on. And I think, you know, straight away, leads me to kind of one of my major principles when I'm designing practice or even delivering a session is making sure that, well, if I'm delivering an in-possession topic first thing I'm doing is going in and working with the defenders and working with them out of possession so I need to make sure that bit's refined and polished up as best as I possibly can get it and in many cases that might be a bit more direct so you are talking about you know using that word managing you know if I'm managing the group I'm I'm being you know very specific about what I want to see and how I want it done and it's not even in many respects up the debate this is it this is what I need from you guys so then that you know because without that I can't really work on my in possession stuff because, like you said, if the defending ain't real, then the in possession fundamentally won't be real either. So I think they need to have the real problems to break down and un- unpack. I think you're right. I think a lot of coaches probably will gravitate more towards the in possession stuff, but I think it's really important that they just you know they do take that into consideration. That how are they defending? Um, but you know the question that comes back off the off that for me is. And obviously, you know, you, you 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 know, you've been in different different countries and whatnot. But from your experiences, would you say that in some ways, more and more coaches are finding it harder to coach defending? Maybe because it's less focus on it now across the board. I don't know if I'm I mean, I'm generalizing a little bit. Um, but do you think enough coaches have? The knowledge and the experience yeah. to actually approach spending effectively.
2: You there, G? Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> I nearly cut across you there. My bad. Um, I agree with you. Um, sorry, Wi Fi dipping in and out. Um, I agree. I actually think if I look back at all the, the years, even everywhere, the same problems exist in that. A lot of coaches don't typically like coaching defending. You know, even when I've introduced certain weeks where, um how we were, just to give you a snapshot in our curriculum, our curriculum, we use the phrase flexibility within a framework. So there's a certain way in which we want to coach and how we want to coach. Everything must be directional. It's got to have choices. There's got to be problems to solve. It's got to create game-like experiences like their game. Um We want to coach more in games, there's got to be a, a golden thread that runs throughout. How that looks is different. You know, not every every team has to coach the same theme, if you like, or the same focus, because some teams are very good at building their attack. But for them, it might be more finishing the attack and different ways to, to create and score on the opponent's final third. Or for other teams, it might be, no, they actually just need to get the basics of when we build out at the back, or even not even just building out the back, every time we win the ball, we give the ball away immediately after one or two passes. So can we just get very good at how we keep hold of the ball? For other teams, it's when they lose the ball, they haven't got those defensive uh, triggers or reactions, what-if moments, they're not good at anticipating danger, so on. So every team will look different. So some teams might be focusing more on defensive principles over others, more attacking. Right, which is your in and out possession type stuff. Um, but what's interesting in that is even when I've sort of specified to some teams as the boss, if you like, as, the, as the, the director of coaching, look, your team's conceding too many goals. So it's all well and good we want to get this, but we've got to get this right. So for some weeks, for some teams, I sort of said, look, over the next six weeks, I want us to focus without going too blockish, but I do want us to focus a lot on more the defending. But it's interesting how a lot of coaches found that difficult. They'd often struggle with it or not fight against it, but they'd almost say, oh, we've done too much of this, but we need to work on our scoring or we need to work on this and that. Or, you know, corner kicks or whatever, or throw ins. And they get a bit silly, really, and they're thinking, you know, what they think is a priority. Um, When actually it should be versus trying to uh, cover a load of topics, how can we go deep? So, depth versus breadth and we're really trying to actually make sure that we're layering because my argument to everyone is this. How can we assume that learning has took place or even that they've suddenly improved and mastered something before we move on? Like We're we're assuming that that one-hour session or that 90-minute session has been that good that all of a sudden we can scrap that and move on to something else because that's often what coaches do, right? They get almost impatient and they want to go, oh, no, we've done this for too long. We've got to move on, right? But actually, no. Like, one, maybe you haven't even done it with quality or good enough. I'm not trying to be too harsh. And two, it's okay to do the same things. It can look very different, but the kids don't get bored. You know, they do not get bored. It's how you do it. And it's how you package it. But we've got to make sure it's relevant to them. And you're building something, right? So I've seen some people put on sessions And then if you look at, you know, without going off on different topics, if you look at the percentage dial, how much was talking, how much was explaining, how much was stopping it, how much was transitions in between activities, water breaks, everything else, that's assuming that they're a good coach and they're very good at those things. Even if they are, you're still looking at, I mean, we did a study on it, you know, out of a 60-minute session, on average, how many minutes are the kids touching the ball? And in, and for some of the worst cases, it was less than 10, 20 minutes. That's for the group. So then if you break that down per individual, it's going to be even less. So for all of that, it's like, how can we assume that the actual amount of contact time that they're really having, they've mastered it to go on? So I think for me, without going on a rant, I think it's, it's interesting. It's a great question you say. In Morocco, they didn't like it. Um, because obviously they want to coach more the attacking, they want to focus more on the the creative and the scoring and the flair, the individual dribbling and things like that. And often the defending, to me, and I've seen this in the US as well, was too scripted. So I think there's this very naive perception that attacking can be creative and open, and defending is um, scripted. is oh no, de- defending is pretty black and white. You know, you go here, you go here, you go here. Well, if it was as simple as that, every game would be zero zero. Surely, we wouldn't be conceding any goals. So, I think defending can be creative. It's it's how we defend. Um, you know, like uh, as an example, one of the coaches the other day talking about high press. Right, what's going to happen? The number nine is going to cut the pitch in half. That's going to be the trigger. He's going to press high, cut the line in between two centre-backs or whatever they're playing. After that, he's going to arc his run, force the ball to go a certain way. Full The winger's going to be in between the defender and the full-back. So-and-so's going to press on the number six. So-and-so's going to do this. So-and-so's going to do that. And we're going to force him down the outside and win the ball. Or force him out of play. Okay, that's great. But what happens if that doesn't go well? (laughs) What happens if they actually play through your press or they bounce it back and actually do get out? Even if your timing and your angles and your speeds were were all meant to be spot on, but they still managed to find a way out, then what? But nobody ever coaches that. Nobody ever goes, oh, well, if we get beaten here, like, well, then you would recover to here or whatever. And it becomes too robotic. So I think that might be some of the reasons why, you know, and others, why don't we spend as much time out of possession? Because we think it's as simple as, hey, you press, get to his hip, do this, do that, that's enough detail. But then we spend so much time going on the attacking. Is that because attacking's sexier? Is that because attacking's more fun? I don't know, Yaz, you know. But I think what we've got to do as coaches is challenge our biases. And we've also got to look at ourselves and go, well, how how detailed is my own knowledge in and out of possession? Because if you look at the game and you look at their game, there's a lot that can go on, both attacking and defending. How good are you at supporting the players in those key areas? Whilst thinking about what like transition? Like if we take transitions as a as a topic, you know, on average, from the FIFA World Cup, I know it's a senior game, but still, from the men's world cup. There was 98 attacking transitions per game on average. So an attacking transition every 35 seconds of the ball being in play. Every 35 seconds. Now that's at the top level. Now think about what does that look like at under 10s or under 12s or whatever you're working at, right? Like, There's a lot of transitions, isn't there, Yaz? And that's also how they learn. So we've got to make sure that we create these games where whether it's in possession or out of possession transitions a huge part of that design because that is the game we need to get the ki- the players kids or men or women very good at when we lose the ball what do we do to get it back and after we've won it back what do we do so we don't just keep giving it away i, f- I
0: think it's beyond that though Gerard. i think there's, you know there's some fight you know i fully agree with everything that you said then i think there's something else to consider is that if you don't have that element of transition in your practice there's no consequence for a mistake Spot. because if they know they're going to get it back then they, they they're not going to interact with the with the game or the practice or the drilling if if people want to call it that in the way they probably would within a game situation because in the game you you make a mistake there's a consequence now it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to result in a goal but the consequence is you've lost possession and now you have to get it back so fundamentally you need to you need to create the situation have the transition in there so that it can replicate that piece of it you know you're not leaving the players guessing or, or, or around. Or what does that then look like when it when it comes to the game? They know you're, you're preparing them by exposing them to the variables that exist as a result. And fundamentally, if the transition's in there, well, it's recognizing that transition could be the player picking it up and driving at you. It's recognizing the player could pick it up and actually knock it in behind you, or wherever else they may put it. And if you're not getting exposed to the different types of elements of what that transition could potentially look like, then you're not, you know you're, you're you're kind of in many ways. Robbing the players from the opportunity to sense danger and assess where that danger could exist and occur in the game. So I think it, it, it's so pivotal for me. I mean, I, you, you talk, you know, you said something earlier about the players. The players will just they will just play. They enjoy it, and I think that's the key. I, th- you know, I think every single practice I do now has an element of transition. Even in a goalkeeping practice, if I was to work with goalkeepers, element of transition has to be that element of transition, because that transition is, in many respects, the incentive they need to ensure the motivation is right to do what you need him to do, whether that is in or out of possession. And fundamentally, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, there's a lot of players that don't, don't, don't want to do the out-of-possession stuff, but actually recognising, well, if you understand that the out-of-possession stuff is just as important as the in-possession stuff, good out-of-possession work and training against good out-of-possession work is what's going to enhance your in-possession ability. Well, it's a win-win for everyone in that respect. So I guess, you know my question to you is we're well, looking at it looking at the question itself if you're looking at the percentage of you know what it should be or what it should be wh- where are your thoughts are with that and I know that many people are probably going to be thinking well surely it's dependent on what your philosophy is and I'll put a big question mark over that and I'm not sure I'm not sure it actually depends what it matters what your philosophy is because fundamentally it sh- your session should it be designed around the philosophy it should be you know I'm sure you'd agree with this it should, it should be designed around what the expectations are of the game that your players are involved in.
2: Well, that's a, actually, that's a, an even more interesting point that you've just made there, which is when people talk about their philosophy, but the game is the game, irrespective of... Um, and that's a good comeback to anyone who says that. Irrespective of whether you think, oh, but we're going to be more of a this team or that team or we're going to play this way or whatever. That's all well and good, but the players need to be able to understand and respond to the game. Like what happens? Players make decisions. Players, um, uh, you could describe as like a variable random because it's unpredictable. Like there are certain constants in the game that don't change irrespective of formation, philosophy, whatever. And that's that the game is based on attacking one end and defending another. So it's directional offsides influences movement because if if we didn't have offsides, it'd be American football. You'd be throw it as far as you can and run after it, kick it or whatever, which it would be. So, offsides dictates the timing of your movement to get into that dangerous area. You've got to score more goals than the opposition and to do that you've got to be able to utilise possession effectively. So, they're constants that don't change. Now, you know, and and then... Obviously, the variable is, well, the players, how players move in relation to the ball, time, space, opponents. That changes how people think and respond to situations. So, um, I think that's a huge point that you make. And I think, I don't know if I've got an actual exact answer of, or if there is one around like a percentage. I don't know if it can be an absolute um, which goes back to a comment you made many, many moons ago about being careful of absolutes. Um, I think it's almost a case of how can we design environments where we can shine a more light on the attack in possession or out of possession, but we, you can't do one without the other. So we need to respect the fact that we've got to create an environment that is the game. Don't try and stay too far away from the game. It's got to have the moments of attacking, defending, and transition. And um, you know, a prime example could be um, because we know transitions is a huge part of the game, right? At every level, at every stage of that child's journey or man's, woman's journey. You could have too many pitches going on side by side. And the, and the coach has to skillfully manipulate constraints and challenges to guide how players respond. So an example can be, you know, it could be a one-touch finish. So, by putting a one-touch finish on it, you're forcing players to have to combine, which then allows time for defenders to travel, speed the ball travels, react, whatever it may be. So, as that's happening, you could put a rule on where, you know, once you score on your pitch, you immediately run to another pitch, right? But the rule is that there can be no more than five players on any pitch on any given time, Um And there must be a minimum of a 1v1 on any pitch. Now what that does is that creates natural overloads and underloads. So there'll be moments where players have scored, and it could be 3v3 on each pitch, let's say. But the minute I score, I run over, and it now becomes 4v3. But then it becomes 3v2 on the other pitch, or 2v3. Somebody else scores again, now, and somebody else scores. And it could be a 4v2 on one pitch or whatever, So now what you're doing is you're creating an environment where there's natural overloads and underloads. There's natural transitions. There's moments where people have to recover and get back in shape as well as join the attack and finish. So they're dealing with that. But you might put certain challenges on it, which is, let's say, if we want to focus more on in possession, how can your touch allow you to play forward early? How can you look forward early to find the the first man to pass to? Or it could be how can your pass or your dribble eliminate two or more defenders, off you go. If it's defending, it might be that you've got that game and that rule, but with the defender, it's how can you win the ball as high at the pitch as possible? And if you do so and score, it's worth X amount of points. So there's an, there's an urgency to win it high up if that's a value you want to reward. And you could make it so it's a competition. So when the players are switching fields, they're on the same colour, if that makes sense. So you've got players in red, players in yellow, whatever your bibs are. But they're collecting accumulative points. So it creates a competitive environment and then you can reward the babies that you want. If if, if, uh, you're defending outnumbered, how can you delay and allow enough time for someone to come back and help you? So if you are 4v2, how are you protecting the, the goal and dropping back? and making it tactical so that you're, you're making the, the game almost like a 2v2, even though you've got a 4v2 against you. So they're, they're coaching moments. And I think that's where my percentage would be, is that every... I don't know if there's an absolute percentage as must be here or here, but what I would suggest is that you create environments where all those things are happening, but then it's down to the skill of the coaching. Like, How are you using conditions, rules, challenges, whatever it may be, to amplify a particular focus that you want to get out of that activity. But you're giving them experiences of attacking defending. You know, you could even do like a tap v defence, but you're saying to the defenders, as an example, the longer you spe- uh, go without conceding a goal, every 30 seconds, or it could be every minute or every two minutes, whatever you want to choose, every two minutes you go without conceding, is an extra goal for you but it also deducts one goal off their tally so let's say the attackers are very good and they're already winning you know by two goals but then the ne- you know you've done your coaching points and you've set a couple of questions and challenges the defenders now are defending more organized they've now made it difficult for the attackers and and now they've gone 2 minutes without conceding it now becomes 1-1 so it makes the game competitive. And you're also rewarding behaviours that you want them to do. Because two minutes is a long time to go without conceding in that type of you know, high-intensity environment. And they might be if they win it and counter in a goal, it gives them an extra point as well. So they could end up going from 2 nil up to being 2-1 two, two up. A 2 nil down to being 2-1 up, if that makes sense. So I'm just throwing out a couple of examples, Yaz. Don't know what your thoughts are, or anyone listening, but they're just... A couple of ways how I would try and balance that percentage so that you create an environment that encompasses all, but you're amplifying certain behaviors that you wanna reward,
0: yeah, most definitely, and I think it's really important And if guys you know everyone in the room, if you've got any views on it you know on on the questioning you know whether we're you're gonna go more in more or out of possession, love to hear your views, what your thoughts are on anything that we've been we've been discussing so far as well. Um, because I think it's really important to kind of understand that everyone's going to do this very differently. I think you're right, Gerald. There's no, there's no exact percentage, no definitive answer. And I don't think anyone's looking for one either. But I think it's important that we just start to share and understand different views and opinions and the why and what the rationale really is behind and what the evidence is to support it. So I think examples are, examples are fine. I think you know, probably the key takeaway and something I probably look to apply a lot in, in my own work anyways, um making sure that I'm incentivising the players to do certain things that I want to see more of. From them, um, helping them to understand that actually these are these are the maybe behaviours and actions that are going to get you more success in a game if you can get or if you can crack crack the one well. I think the other side of it is, you know, coming back to my previous previous point is uh, uh, around the knowledge and the experience of coaches in actually coaching the out of possession, coaching the defending, coaching that individual defending in particular, and you know, recognizing what effective defending looks like or may not look like. And you you talked about earlier on. You know, we want our players to be creative and, yeah, we do, but in order for them to be creative, they need to be facing different challenges and difficult challenges at times in front of them, different pictures in front of them that then forces them to be creative. Hence why we have to go back to that piece around how how well are we managing the out-of-possession work when we're working in possession or vice versa. Before we even go to the out possession and we want to work on out-of-possession, how how creative or how how direct or... um prescriptive can we be for the in possession around what their outcomes are it's not just about maintaining possession, it's not just about um you know breaking the lines it's actually how do we how do we unbalance the defenders how do we unbalance them as individuals and as units how do we create those overloads around and we're forcing the out of possession players to make those decisions now all of a sudden we've, we've you know we've designed the practice and we've directed a practice that's going to allow us to get more coaching opportunities but i think the challenge comes, obviously, when you're not looking in possession. It's very easy just, just to put them in a game and let them play for coaches that aren't maybe being a little bit more deliberate and intentional because the in-possession is always going to happen regardless whether there's whether there's pressure or no pressure. But the out-of-possession, well, you have to coach that now. You have to step in and work with that now to make sure we get it right and make sure it develops and make sure it gets collectively better. So, obviously, you're going to have individual moments where players might step out and, you know, they might step you know step out and do an interception or they might decide they want to tackle or whatever but how good can we get at coaching these players when they're out of possession in terms of anticipating the game reading the pictures of the game reading some cues and triggers and actually being aware of what the triggers you know could look like and fundamentally you want to get to a point where if you like they get so used to reading the game they can almost predict what's going to happen next because of probability and sequences that they have picked up and patterns they picked up on. Like it's like a chess player, right? You know, the chess. As soon as the chess player sits down and a P, and a movement's made, he's not making that move for now. He's making it for two or three steps ahead or four or five steps ahead because he's anticipating right, what the possible outcomes are off the back of the move that he's just made. And then he's already started to pattern it out. And if we can maybe potentially get our defense, you know, our players out of possession to think and read the game in that way you know, you might never have to see any tackles, but you might see a hell of a lot of interceptions, a lot of high turnovers and transitioning, you know, going from out to in. And all of a sudden, we're back onto the in-possession stuff that people like to work on. So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Gerard, or, you know, what what your advice would be for coaches to start to think. I know you gave a couple of examples of practices that you might use, but in terms of just maybe going that one step further and maybe developing a, a, a better understanding, better knowledge and some experiences around, how to maybe effectively coach the out of possession stuff. Because I think that's probably for many people a bigger challenge than coaching the in possession stuff, because the in possession stuff is a bit more direct, it's a bit more simple. You can you know, you you can get away with saying, oh well I'm gonna let them be creative and pick up their own pick up their own um, ideas around how they're gonna do it. I don't know what your thoughts are on that
2: though. No, I think you're spot on. I think the more I listen to you I was writing down in myself, we've got to almost look for, and look for and think about the pictures that we'd want the players to be able to see. You know, you use these words like cues and stuff like, what are the triggers that players need to be able to know to sense danger or to, to play in the future, to, to play ahead of themselves and anticipate that, do you know what, he's coaching, attacking, and he always says to the player, as that ball's travelling, this player's making this run. To receive, or this player's making this offer behind me, or wherever the the, the receiving action is. What, like, where's the danger if we lose the ball now? What could hurt us? You know, so it's almost thinking about what does good look like, what does great look like, and then from that, creating the not so much, I guess, po- coaching pictures, but more scenarios and questions. You know, I quite like your thing around the the session being a question. So then the players have to solve that question versus like a set fee. Because if we're thinking about defending, how good is, I mean, just piggybacking off your point, how good is our detail? You know, and how much in-depth knowledge do we actually have? So I think a great way for people to start, obviously watch the game and watch examples of what people do. Um, but really, can we learn through the eyes of, of the player? So if we're creating vantage points within a session where well, we might stand and observe, where would we need to stand in order to see the run from that forward and how that might hurt the player? And Then how can we get the defenders to look out for that information? So it's almost like creating really clever questions, design a, 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 a practice that is a, is a game, not just as simple as a game, but it could be anything. It could be a possession activity, it could be anything. But we're starting off by saying, like, how are we reducing the size of the pitch? Because if we think about defending, you've got to be able to reduce the size of the pitch. You've got to be able to close space down in between lines. You've got to be able to keep your shape and organisation, remain disciplined, and know when and where to apply pressure. Like We'd probably all agree on that. So then, but there's a lot of detail in that. So it might be, which one of those are we starting with first? Is it the when and where to apply pressure? But before we get to that, are we thinking about how we reduce the size of the pitch? Like, what are the actions that we do to make it more difficult for teams to be able to to play? And I'd almost, you know, as I'm talking about this, it's funny, like, it's a question I'm going to throw back to the group if anyone wants to answer It's one, how much of your sessions do include defending? You know, if you if you were to put it on a, you know, percentage, what would it be if, as a rough estimate? But even a, another question I've got is, how many of you start coaching defending when you start your season? Because every pre-season and, and every sort of season going into the, the actual year, I typically, with my teams as a preference, I always focus on defending first, always. Because I actually feel that it, it it's... Um, one, you're making your teams organised because, you know, we talk about attacking, but if you can't defend, you're going to constantly concede goals. You're not going to finish out games or close games out. So I always try and get the behaviours right of like how we press. If we lose the ball, how do we get back? Like who presses when? How do we keep our shape? The, you know, like your discipline and, and recovery runs and things like that. Like The non-negotiables, the hard work as well as knowing when to go and when not to go, and just body contact. You know, I'm a big believer in, like, uh, making contact, because players hate it, right, that physical touch. So once we get that right, I've already coached attacking without them realising it, because if you get the defending right, it's making it more difficult for the the attackers. So the attackers are learning in your session, so without you realising it, you are coaching attacking, because you're coaching your defenders on how to stop them from playing through or playing forward or scoring goals the attackers are are going to have to deal with that type of pressure and then when you get to attacking it becomes even better so for me there's the you know you've always got that interlinked counter principle so I actually think Yaz yes, it's a good way to maybe even encourage coaches to think about defending is that you know if you really want to do attacking well Focus on defending first because you'll get the attacking better. Do you
0: know what I mean? I, I, I think just to kind of add on to that, it's really important as well. Just, you know, if, if you're a coach listening to this now, thinking right, okay, all of that's great, but how do I get started or where do I go with it next? I think the first thing to do is probably look at what you want to coach and just exhaust yourself around, you know, a list of possibilities around. What, in particular, are the variables which can have an impact on this outcome? So, you know, as an example of that, you know, I'll use everyone's favourite one, playing out from the back. Well, what's going to stop us from playing out from the back? What's going to have an impact on our ability to play out from the back? Well, first and foremost is two parts to it. What our team are doing and what the opposition are doing. Right, brilliant. What are the things that our team are doing which can have an impact on this? break that down, put a list together. What are the things that the opposition are doing that could have an impact on this? Break that down and put this together. And then all of a sudden you've got a whole bunch of variables, but then now, you know, if you want to break it down further and go into the finer details of that, it's, well, if these are the things that can have an impact on what our team are doing and we're trying to build out from the back, well, when does it become more or less successful within that and start breaking that down? And, and that you know, break that down for everything that you put on that list, and you get to the point where you've exhausted that list. So you've got so many different considerations, so many different variables, that that becomes the detail that you look out for, and then want to coach within your practice or your session, or even in your game days. What's actually stopping it? You know, you get you get so many situations that I've you know I've seen in the past where a team will say, yeah, my team's playing out from the back, and they're great from they're great at playing out from the back, but actually the opposition are never pressing them. So are they really great out from, great from playing out the back, or are they just being allowed to play? And then it's like, well, if you haven't taken those variables into consideration and then haven't, them, you know, subsequently, then you're not able to then recognize actually what's getting us to success. Well, how do you then decide whether it's actually successful or not? And if you don't know where it's broken, you know, where, where you've actually got success from, you'll never be able to identify effectively where it's broken down subsequently. So it's really important that you start to exhaust that list. And then once you exhaust that list, maybe share it with another, another coach that you know. You know, even get in touch with myself and Joe. we might even have some different considerations for you, or even some of the other coaches in the room. Because we're all going to see it very differently. We're all going to view the considerations slightly differently, but we all might have a few different considerations. And I think there's a conversation I was having with one of the coaches um, that I spoke to today at some event. And when I did my UEFA uh, my B as an example, My ue b was the last one of its kind at the time. It then transitioned into a new format, which is the current format. And then I believe it's currently going under a restructure. So we might see a new format in the next 12 months. But fundamentally the conversation was, well, there was a coach, there was a coach developer delivering a session today. And the level of detail that he was going into was what was bog standard when I was going for the ue b So, for a lot of the coaches that have maybe gone through it post 2015 post 2016 you might you might be missing some of the key considerations the key detail that might have been covered in pre in prior years on those courses so i encourage you a lot to really go out there do the work try and find out right well, what, what 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 was i potentially missing what have i missed out on what what have i not considered yet because until you do that, and when you finally realise, oh, actually, you know what, I haven't thought about this shit, or I haven't thought about this shit, or someone else has given me a consideration over here, that actually, now let me look at it through their lens and apply it, and then try to apply it in my context, my players, and make it make sense to them. You start to get yourself such a well-rounded element of, well, what can I coach? There's so many different things you can coach. And you can, and you can as then you, as time goes on, I'm not sure if you've realised this, Gerard, but you can literally coach anything you want if you understand the detail it doesn't even matter what the practice is because you understand the detail so well you understand the pictures that the game can present so well or or well enough that you can identify those pictures those moments those variables those considerations and that final level of detail regardless of what the practice is to the point where actually in the end you'll probably move to a point where you're not even you're not even thinking too much about how you design your practice and you're just thinking right well let me just get a practice which looks like the game which might end up being playing a game but you've got the knowledge bank there around the experiences and the understanding of what the detail could be within it and then you just kind of laser focus in on some of that but coming back to the you know the point of the, the this discussion around whether it should be in and out of possession that applies to both how much do you know about the in possession how much can you actually coach and are you able to then look at right what's next? Once your players have got what you're trying to get them to understand, whether it be in, out, or in the transition phases, are you just sitting there and saying, Yeah, that's well done, guys. Happy, happy days. Or are you saying, right, okay, what's the next piece? What's the next layer on top of this that I can like maybe let me put on top of for them? You know, it might not be today, it might be next week, it might be two weeks down the line, but there's only so far you're going to go keep repeating the same information, regurgitating the same detail again and again and again. Yes, we can refine. Yes, we can polish up. But fundamentally, it's, right, how do we get the next 1%? And the 1% after that. And then the 1% after that. So the little things that, you you know, you've, you just mentioned it there, Joe. I'm, I'm telling my players all the time, like, don't make a run without making contact. You know, don't make a run without making contact. As soon as you make that contact with a defender, guess what? For that split second, they're off balance. They think they're, they're probably more... Annoyed and frustrated at the fact that they made you made contact with them, they're actually focusing on the game. Now they can't focus on you and the game at the same time. So if you you know if the, if those small margins, if you take advantage of those split seconds, and the players on your team across the board recognize these are the moments and these are the variables that we're in, that we're interacting with, that's how you can you know get across the game a lot quicker. I think it was you know I can't remember when when, when was it when was it Germany won the World Cup a few years back right and. One of the biggest things that they noticed was, 2006 uh, was it? Yeah, possibly. Um, but one of the biggest things—I can't remember the exact figure—but they but basically they they worked out that whatever whatever the average time spent in possession for each player was, um, that if they sh- you know if they shaved that down by I think it was 0.2 seconds. Um, then they would be secure in possession every on on the end of every pass. So prior prior to I don't know you're gonna to have to look it up to see the specifics on it. But prior to the World Cup, they had a certain a certain number of what that was. They then managed to shave it down, and that was fundamentally that was the difference. And it made you know you can't put it all down to that, but that might have been the one percent that they gained as a marginal gain off the back of it to now go ahead and win the World Cup. Now. You know, it's, it's, it's you know it's easier said than done. It's simple just to kind of highlight that these these are the statistics, but there's some considerations there. Is the point I'm trying to make around what that what that change could have been, what that one percent advantage could have been, because you're not going to teach these players fundamentally how to get you know be better on the ball as technicians, but what you can do is you can get them to better understand where and when they should apply it and how that position could look. Cause by that point, they've already got the tools in their locker. It's just now looking at, well, well, what's the best tool and when when should I use it? How do I how do I then engage a defender better? How do I then you know penetrate beyond that defender a little bit better? How do I then put myself in a position where it forces this forces this, the the opponents to slow down and delay themselves or whatever that looks like? But you know, there's so much detail in there that I think we need to st- we need to step out our comfort zones, exhaust those list, make sure we have got those considerations, and just build from there. Went on a bit of a ramble, but I don't
2: know what your thoughts are on that. Gerardo. No, I agree with you. I actually think it's it's amazing how much, if we look at the sort of what we value, how that shapes how we're going to coach. That's why I always ask, like, the that's why I always say that the quality of your questions represents the quality of your values. So, like, what are you really putting a, a, an importance on as a coach? You know, me and you both talking about contact there, and then you can talk about that the little one percent. And that is the difference, isn't it? It's that simplicity of having a very clear idea in your mind of what it is and then just researching it. So, like, I think with this defending topic as we're talking about it, it's really getting into coaches' minds that, like, defending is fun as well, you know. And what is it that you want to be the, the sort of signature that represents the players that you're working with? So, like I said before, like, an issue when I went to Morocco, I remember some of the coaches, you know, they'd spend a lot of time on possessions and um, all positional possession activities and rondos and you name it, the wood, um, and different attack v defenses and things like that. And we were talking about, you know, but yeah, but what happens when we lose the ball? And they didn't, not everyone had that detail, or the <laughs> just some of the other antics that would go on, but that changed you know we brought in a bit of a culture as part of the the DTN under Osh and other people and even if you look at like Raguawe who who came in as the the head coach that emphasis changed because Morocco was a is a very attacking team very dangerous on counters but um and set pieces as well because of the analysts that they have there but um they knew that in in a lot of moments in the game they'd probably spend um, out of possession. So going back to your question, you asked of in possession, out of possession. Morocco were quite clever in that they knew, like, hey, we're going to the World Cup. We're probably going to spend a lot of time out without the ball. So we need to have a plan for how do we defend. What's our strategy? And you know, most people might not know this. Like, I'm I'm going to piggyback off the t- one thing you said and then add something on it. You talk about Germany in that World Cup, and you're actually right. There was another stat where I remember it coming on the AYA where Martin Diggle mentioned this to us and he Germany from that World Cup um, and one of the ones even in, in, uh, I think it might have been the South Africa one. Basically, whenever they committed a foul, if they ever gave away a free kick, they never gave away one free kick in their half because that was something that the manager, the head coach made very clear to the players that if we give away a free kick... We're going to do it in their half. That way, it's less likely to hurt us. Now, something as simple as that, not overly detailed, but they embedded that in their culture and how they trained and what behaviours they reinforced and what have you. They always made sure if we're going to commit a foul, and in that World Cup, the, the most of their fouls, they were always done in the opponent's half. So it's like the little details in it, like you say, 1%. So Morocco when we came in and uh, Reguire was actually on the the pro licence with us, and then obviously he took over from coach for Morocco had an incredible World Cup. Well, for those who don't know, out of the 32 teams that were at the World Cup, Morocco spent the greatest amount of time out of possession, and they did that in a mid-block. And uh, 38% of their time was without the ball, operating in that type of uh, block, so they were very difficult to, to beat. I mean, most of you will probably remember the Saudi Arabia, um, Saudi versus Argentina game, right? You guys, you remember that one against Messi? And that was unbelievable. But you look at how they defend. And that, again, that's another former Moroccan head coach, by the way, Herb Renard. He used to manage the national team before Vahid came in. And those principles have been set in around organisation. So I think where I'm going with this, because I know I'm throwing out stats there, but they're important because I would relate this back to like what what do what do you what are the players you're working with? Because we've got to think about the people that we're working with. I think a good coach is somebody that knows the people they're working with and gets the very best out of that talent. You know, and everyone can criticise and all oh, they only play this way or that way, and we can have those purest sort of debates. But a good coach is somebody that can elevate their standards and their potential. Keep them performing at a consistent level. So consistency is key, but outperform where they should be. Get them to be organised based on their talent. Like that's the, the, the job of any leader in my book. If you're a leader in any organisation, more often than not, you don't always recruit everybody. You inherit a group of staff. Well, how do you get the best out of those that you manage, right? Because not everyone's as strong in certain areas. So you have to get the best out of that team. And I think it's the same on a soccer pitch. So, you know, going back to you might be working with some players where they're going to play games where they're not always going to have the ball. Well, what's your strategy out of possession to, to go and make sure that you're organised, to play to your strengths? So for Morocco, it was operating a mid-block, be difficult to break down, and then hurt them on counterattack transitions. That was the strategy, among other strategies. So I think that's key. Saudi Arabia game was a great example of how they maintained a result. And the performance second half was incredible against some of the best players in the world. Well, the winners. So I think those are the details that people have got to go into. Um, you know, and I'd throw it back out to the group. You know, I don't know if there are any questions. I know we've we've done a lot of talking, and if there aren't, that's okay. But you know, I'd throw it back out there. Is like, how is this? How is what we've said influenced your thinking? What are your thoughts? Agree? Disagree? You know, almost. What are you going to do differently? or continue to do more of when you go back to your environment, you know, because, I mean, certainly for me, it's, I'm thinking about this now thinking, you know what, Yaz, I'm going to think even clearer now. Like, what are my non-negotiables? And then how do I train it? That's what I'm taking from this talk as well. Yeah, no, 100%. I think for me, it's
0: more... <laughs> it probably has re- reconfirmed some of the things I was already thinking, but maybe... uh put some more clarity on it, you know, rather than it, it being a bit of a debate or a bit of grey area in your mind about how important some of this stuff is, probably just clarified to me, actually, no, I need to know that I'm definitely doing more of it going forward. Um, and even you talk there about throwing stats up, I think it's, it's the stats are there, but it's, what are you going to do with the can it How do you perform the way you work with That's probably the biggest piece as well. And then beyond that, I think it's just recognising there is no right and wrong way fundamentally. But what are we doing to try and get better at what we're doing? Are we just stagnating? Are we just doing the same things again and again and again and repeating what we've been doing for the last few years or just doing what we're doing because that's what we've done us. Um, that's what we've been used to seeing as, with, with coaches around us. And what are we doing to maybe, like I said, take it to the next level? Are we looking for those 1%? Are we aware of those 1% and where they can even occur and exist? So I think it's just probably just looking at the finer details and just being very critical in that respect. But uh, no, I think, there's, you know, we've covered a lot, Gerard, and I think that hopefully there's been some food for thought for people to think about. Um, and, and on that note, guys, if you have got any questions, any any thoughts on what's been discussed today, please share your views with us. You know, we're really interested for us um, to get your get your perspectives and your opinions and just to see where some of the points that we've discussed have kind of landed with you guys as well. Um. And just, you know, just a, a, a quick announcement as well. So obviously you will have known for those that have been following us. Um, we've done the last four Sundays as a CPD special where you could have got yourself an hour CPD for participation in each of the spaces as well as a brief post-session task. We will be taking a, a break next week um, with a view to coming back the next, the following week after that where we'll have another four topics released um, in a build-up to a webinar that we're going we're gonna to put on in July as well so if you haven't already um, followed us please make sure you're following us make sure you're staying involved in the conversations that are taking place Um, Gerard over to you man
2: no that's a great one to to end on Yasmin if if there are any questions feel free raise your hand or just unmute yourself or or add anything you know we we love that interaction Um, and as Yas said we're going to have those webinars going to be starting and Twitter spaces so not on next week, but the week after we've got a series. Uh, Can't wait around developing the decision maker, and that'll that'll be accredited, and that'll obviously lead into a, a webinar in July as well. So more information to follow, um, and then I guess the, well the only other reminder I've got is there's a few familiar faces that listen to you know the previous Twitter Spaces. So if you were part of that group and or you've recently clicked on a link and listened to it, make sure that you registered. Uh, with the link that's on Yaz's profile, and that'll make sure that we've got your details. And then if you submit your self reflection task, um, then you're eligible for the FACPD points. The deadline is tomorrow, June 5th at 5 p.m. Uh, Greenwich Mean Time. So just make sure you've still got enough time to, to get some FACPD for those that have been involved. Um, I can see
3: Warren's up to speak. Yes, was. How's, how's it going? All right, check great session again tonight as usual um superb um just 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 as very quickie, really is 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 having that in the back of your mind with your coaching um as, as you just said you know you're always learning and 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 to have on board to, to to try something different at times you know and 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 learn from from other coaches um i mean a coach um as I say like a youth level whatever but but I, but I've been quite lucky this year i've, I've watched um uh, locally i've watched ipswich Town a lot, and Kieran McKenna is really really changing how I think about um, the coaching that I do with the lads he you know he's using sort of a a four two three one but a very fluid um, formation the the left back is has got the highest assists goal wise in in the league um we, you know they've scored more goals than Man City, you know, or whatever this season. And the interesting thing there is, um, you know, to, to help the strikers um, last summer, he, he bought in a new coach and he brought in a goalkeeper, you know, kind of outside the box, really, in League One. Um, but Lee Grant was brought in, you know, 300-odd games with Derby, Sheffield Wednesday and, and the like, um, but purely bought in to help the strikers. Um, and I think it's just it's just having on board that um, that open mindedness, um, yeah, to, to 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 look and see, you know, learn from from people much higher up the ladder than than, than I'll ever be, but um, but taking things on board that you know that you can see and, and little things that you can put into your own training sessions, and and uh, and I think for me certainly this year has, has been a big part of that. So yeah, just that was all I was going to say.
0: No, I really appreciate that, Warren. I think it's you know it's, it's good that you brought that up because you know there is a lot of coaches doing some great things and just thinking outside the box a little bit. And I think you know what you've just described there around Kieran McKenna bringing in Lee Grant as an example. I think that's exactly what we're trying to say, and you know the point that we've been trying to make. They're bringing in what they're likely to play against, or if you can, you know, if, in this case, it might even be that case. You know, in all in all fairness, and no disrespect to anyone that's in that league. Lee Grant might actually be better than some of the goalkeepers he comes up with. So, you know, if the forwards can unpack themselves and finishing against a, a keeper, you know, like Lee Grant, then who knows how that's going to develop and further, further enhance what the, what the strikers are able to do in that, in that respect. So, no, I think it's a great point. But Gerard, um, I don't know if anyone's got any else, any, anything else they want to add or any questions they want to ask. Um, but otherwise, Warren, thank you very much for your in- contribution there. Gerard, as ever, it's been you know, fantastic. And guys, just a quick reminder, um, we will be taking a break next weekend, so there'll be no space next week. Um, and we'll be back the following week. So just keep an eye out on our pages. If you're not already following us, please make sure you're following us. Um, and we'll have an announcement out within the next uh, couple of days around our upcoming CPD webinars or spaces sessions um, leading into a webinar that we're going to be putting on in July. Um, Anything else from you,
2: Jay? No, just building off the back of what was was said. Just stay curious, isn't it? I think stay curious and just think about how we can do things even differently. Almost challenging a little bit of, you know, asking that question like, why have we always done things the way we have? Do we have to copy that again? You know, this copy paste. Can what else can we do different? I always love the phrase, um, observe everybody else and do the direct opposite. You know, so yeah, love it. Um, thanks everyone, you know, and the listening and engagement as always is great and uh, can't wait uh, for you know not next week but the week after it'll be fun have a great rest of the weekend
0: most definitely take care guys have a great evening and look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks